again to Media Democracy, a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My co-host as ever is Tom Mills, at TA underscore Mills on Twitter, and my name is Dan Hind at Dan Hind on Twitter. We're brought to you by the Media Fund, which you can also find on Twitter, and you can follow the show's Twitter account on at Media Democrat. On today's show, Tom and I will be talking about the role of of the public in public service media in the UK. We'll start by talking about how the public and its opinions are represented in public service media, and we'll explore how that that might change for the better in the future. We'll then talk about how the public feature in the existing editorial culture of both the public and the private media. Finally, we'll look at a particular moment in the BBC's political coverage and how general assumptions about and attitudes towards the public played out in the period immediately after the financial crisis. So, Tom, let's talk a little bit about how the BBC has related to its audience in the past and how it does so now. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. The BBC pioneered this idea of public service broadcasting, and obviously you know, a big element of that is, is the public. But one of the uh, notable things about the BBC and this tradition of broadcasting is that it's based on the public service model. So the, the public themselves have a relatively... Uh, minor role in in program making, in editorial decision making, and and the rest of it. So, the the original model for the BBC was you know broadly along the lines of the the civil servants civil service. So you'd have a you know highly educated Oxbridge kind of elite making decisions about what would be broadcast, and the dialogue with the public insofar as there was one. Uh, basically emerges through audience research. But in the, in the earliest days of the BBC, there was really no possibilities for interaction with the audience at all. It was all based on the kind of um, instincts of the people who were involved in public service broadcasting. But, you know, the uh, a sort of process of audience research develops um, in the interwar period, and that's more or less how the BBC continues to this day to understand its audience through these sort of uh, formal mechanisms which the BBC's developed, but then also other kind of procedures. So obviously they keep an eye on polling and media consumption data. And to a certain extent, the the private press has acted as kind of a, a proxy um, for for public opinion. So that's that's been another way which the BBC has, has understood um, public sentiment. Um, and in combination with that, you have this this journalistic tradition of of box pops, which is uh, when you have these, these short kind of segments of uh, interviewing members of the public. You know, or usually be in a public location, and you see this particularly during uh, general elections, or particularly uh, you know you saw it a lot a lot during the referendum, where the, the research that looked at the the voices that appeared in the referendum debate actually the public were were very prominent within that. And I, I think I'm right in saying that um, after politicians, they were the, the largest group that were appearing during a referendum 
and uh, they, they often actually feature surprisingly highly in some, in some content analyses. So you'll see it particularly on television. It's a very um, common form in which the public voice will be seen on the BBC and on, the, on television and other broadcasters, which is these sort of um, you know, impromptu kind of interactions with people going about their daily lives where they'll be asked about who you're voting for, what you think about particular issues, and, and then that finds its way into news bulletins. Um, now, the, the ways in which these uh, so-called vox pops get treated, of course, is that they do go through an editorial process. So it's up to the editors to decide uh, how relevant um, particular perspectives or views are, whether they work in a sort of televisual sort of sense, but also that they try and make sure that the voices that are appearing are, are representative of, uh, first of all, the data they have about public opinion, but also their sense of, you know, what the story is. So that, that frames the basis on which um, people get asked particular questions. So, um, so, so th these are broadly the, the opportunities that the public have for um, interaction within broadcasting. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that... Uh, a, uh, a whole system of, uh, of communication, a whole tradition of communication, which, which relies so heavily on the public, actually has relatively little interaction with the public. And there's, there's a very good study, actually, by, um, from the 1970s, a kind of classic sociological study of, uh, of, of, the, of BBC Newsroom by a guy called Philip Schlesinger. It's called Putting Reality Together. And he has a section in it where he reflects on this, that the fact that the people making the news have absolutely no seem to have no knowledge or understanding of, of their audience, but yet go about making editorial decisions um, on behalf of that audience. And there's an interesting question, isn't there, about like you mentioned the way that vox pops will be edited in light of a, a story as it's unfolding, but also in the, on the basis of background data. And it would be interesting to, to compare our best understanding of public opinion with the assumptions that journalists make day to day. Um, there, are, there are ways, I think, of thinking about the public um, that journalists will tend to have that may be at odds with um, the best available data. So the idea that a, um, a UKIP supporter might be in favour of rail nationalisation, for example, might strike a journalist, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, this is guesswork, but it might strike a journalist as being anomalous. When in fact it's actually quite a quite commonly held view amongst UKIP supporters. So there's a way in which I think there's a danger always that journalists are constructing their kind of archetypal figures um, on the basis of uh, you know an inadequate acquaintance even with the, with the data that they have to hand. Um, there's another. I mean, there are one or two other ways in which. Um, the public feature in the BBC's coverage. I mean, one thinks of um, the question time format, where, again, uh, questions are asked ostensibly by members of the public, but those questions go through some sort of editorial process. Um, there's a decision about who, who asks questions um, on question time. And the... The, the public that appears in, or the public opinion, as it were, that is portrayed in Question Time is, as it were, a given. Um, the public has a range of opinions which are presented to a panel for discussion along 
recognized ideological lines. Um, and I think this more generally speaks to the idea that public opinion is out there, it's static, um, and it is more or less um, unreformable, which is kind of a given. And the job of, uh, of broadcasting is to reflect um, and give due weight to the balance of opinions that are out there. It's really interesting because one of the strange things about this kind of discovery of a, a left-wing kind of public opinion, which was particularly surrounded the launch of the Labour manifesto as that kind of shifted the news agenda during the election campaign, was this sort of apparent surprise that these 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 policies were popular. And the thing that stuck in my mind for that period, I think it was like the second week of the election campaign, was it? Um, was Humphreys uh, cross-examining the uh, Labour politician that they had on about return to the 1970s. These left-wing policies will never fly with the public, you know. Um, well, there's a lot of good public opinion data, actually, which has consistently found that people have been supportive of, you know, nationalisation and derails, a more redistributive um, public uh Fiscal policy, I mean. Um, so the British uh, Attitude Survey, which is, you know goes all the way back to the nineteen eighties, uh, support for some sort of redistributive taxation declines around the Blair era. But generally speaking, the centre of gravity of British public opinion, if you can talk about such a thing, is 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 broadly sort of social democratic. You know, which which explains the popularity of the of the Labour manifesto. So it's interesting, isn't it, that that, that there was if. There was a public opinion out there um, during the 1990s and the noughties, uh, which which the BBC just didn't discover and it, and it didn't reflect. And I think part of the reason for that is that these these vox pox, as it were, and I think you know, question time is, a, is like you say, is a similar sort of form where you you have members of the public presenting questions which which relate to a, to a news agenda and a particular sort of political agenda. So that that has this kind of filtering process where there are things which are on the news agenda, which are on the elite political agenda. And then what you do is you you go out and you find who in the public supports the different competing opinions, you know? Um, yeah. So that means that there's a whole swave of uh, public opinion, opinion on issues that simply doesn't find its way into these kind of news and current affairs agendas, you know? That's, interesting. That's an interesting point, isn't it, about the way that public opinion has this uneasy relationship with parliamentary opinion. Mm. So that if issues are being discussed by the major parties, they become fit objects for uh, examination in terms of what the public think about them. Um, what the public thinks, you know, off-site, like away from parliamentary preoccupations, um, becomes uh, of, of much, much less interest to broadcasters. And as you say, it means that you can have quite the persistent bodies of, of sentiment in favour of, of policies, which are both quite well documented, but which don't seem to um, feature in the thought processes of um, of senior journalists, um, which is peculiar. Um, what I, I mean, what I think, what I think is quite interesting when you look at the array of um, ways in which the public feature. In, um, in coverage. They feature, as you say, in Vox Pops, they feature in um, the Snapshot opinion poll. Um, they feature in, in this very kind of um, stylized form as, as the, the question-asking public 
um, on radio and television. I think it would be interesting to think a little bit about how you might portray public opinion um, in a more dynamic and, in a, in a way, a more autonomous way. And there's a, an American academic called James Fishkin whose who's work on, on um, what he calls deliberative polling uh, is, is, very, is very illuminating in this regard. What Fishkin was interested in doing was, was as it were, looking beyond, behind opinion polls and saying, we go to an un, unprepared public and we ask them a, a question and then we, we take their unrefined answer. And he wanted to, he, he was, the question he was interested in is, well, what happens if we would ask a, a, a representative sample of the population, so a reasonably large group of people, large enough that it would, it would reflect the diversity of the, the, the culture more generally, we would ask them a question, but we would give them the time and the resources to explore the question in more depth, so that we could take a, we could take a look at what, as it were, an untutored public opinion thought about a particular subject. And then over, after, after an, a, a period of time and of mutual um, education and the taking of, of evidence from witnesses and so on, you could then ask that same group of people what they, what they now thought about an issue. So instead of public opinion being a given that, was a, that you took a snapshot of in real time, it becomes something uh, which, is, which is dynamic and which develops over time and which you can actually see developing in real time. And it, it's interesting to me, partly because it has been used as, as a broadcast format. In the early 90s, um, Channel 4 used a deliberative poll to explore the issue. Inevitably, it, they, they looked at the issue of capital punishment, which, which there's a whole other kind of question about why capital punishment is so important as, a, as, a, as an object of public opinion. But I think more generally, you can imagine a format where a... A large, largish sample of people, you know, between I don't know between thirty and hundred people, who were in broad, in a broad sense, representative of the general population, could could meet and discuss an issue of common concern, and they could do so with certain sorts of resources. So they could have they would be they would be paid a certain amount of money to do it. Um, they would be able to call witnesses. They would be able to shift and alter the terms of reference that they were given. And crucially, they, you, could, you could imagine a, a, a broadcast format where they were given the, the editorial backup to produce a documentary, a half an hour or an hour documentary, that, as it were, presented um, their, uh, the balance of views or their unanimous view or, or what, whatever transpired from their deliberations. So you could actually see a group of quote, ordinary people working through a problem in real time, and obviously you'd see edited highlights of it, and it would be subject to all the, uh, the magical tricks of, um, of television production. But you could imagine, I think, quite an interesting broadcast format that was both a kind of reality show, in, the, in perhaps, you know, on, a, on one of the digital channels, um, but also that was then became a refined prod product that was authored by... Um, the members of the public who were drafted onto this jury. And therefore, you could actually see... You could see the public as author, right? The public as, as an agent, as an active agent that's capable of exploring an issue, um, developing li independent lines of inquiry, inquiry, learning how to interrogate experts, learning how to deal with different kinds of evidence... 
and that's a, that's a way in which the public is very rarely seen um, in, in broadcast production. As I say, most of the time, the public is out there, um, and it is depicted um, in, a, in a way that assumes that it is essentially static, and that is subject to all kinds, as we touched on earlier, all kinds of sort of implicit assumptions about what the public is really like, which may or may not have any, any factual basis. I think it's interesting as well to think, I mean, this is something you just mentioned, but about the role of um, accurate information and the use of expertise and the role that that might have in um, deliberative polling. Because if you look at some of, um, to, to look at public opinion and its sort of raw numbers and to take that for granted, you have to be, you have to work on the assumption that, that that's been based on a real understanding of what's going on in your society. So it's a different thing for somebody to make judgments about particular policy areas if they also have access to accurate information on those areas or, or particular, um, say, policy responses that might be made, you know, which, which is, is in, a, in a, it would be a much more democratic um, form. But it, it would be interesting to um, to see what, what role the expertise and, and accurate information could play in that. Because obviously one of the effects of polling is that if you are successful in um, misinformation campaigns is that you will be able to push sections of public opinion one way or the other. Right and I think this is you know this is particularly this is a particularly acute issue in area in areas like political economy where enormous amounts of money are spent on promoting um, more or less fantastical accounts of how the economy works um, which lead to um, which have very, very significant material effects. I think you know there was a great deal of popular acquiescence in um, the need for austerity on the basis of a of an of an account of of how the economy works, which was essentially fantastical. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the one of the uncomfortable things about the media is that the media class itself is very vulnerable to misinformation. Um, the way that like conservative memes about um, the, the economy being like a household, there being no magic money tree, um, every housewife knows she can't spend more than she's got, and so on. All these kinds of commonsensical fantasies about, about the economy, I think are very broadly accepted um, by, by, um, by an awful lot of journalists who really should know, know better. And actually, the jury form would be a space in which more or less impartial, disinterested members of the public could be presented with different elite accounts or different expert accounts of the economy and would be able to make a much more honest and, and re reasonable assessment of their virtues than is possible, I think, in a, in a lot of journalistic contexts. Yeah, I think that's right. And because what's interesting about it is that if, if your information relies upon the journalists, of course, that will then have some sort of impact. Although, you know, Obviously, the relationship between um, media content and public opinion is very complex. But I mean, it's clear you have this sort of slightly complicated sort of uh, feedback loops going on. There's a, there's an, I just wanted to flag up another interesting book on the way in which polls are represented or misrepresented in the media as well, which is um, Justin Lewis's book, Constructing um, Public Opinion, which is it's about the way in which um, polls are, are used by the media um, 
as uh, sort of hooks for particular stories as well. And what's interesting about that is that you can see that public opinion is used in political conflicts between different sections of the political elite. I mean, we're going to go on later to talk a bit about, you know, populism, which, you know, everyone wants to talk about at the moment, but the, the ways in which different factions of the elite can, to, can appeal to public opinion, and it's those people who tend to define how the questions get phrased, and, the, and then, then that will then become a, a news story, which then reinforces... Um, reinforces journalistic ideas about what public opinion is and what um, what is and isn't a legitimate representation of um, this kind of, you know, uh, artifact that we call public opinion. Good, good. Okay, well, I, I think that's a, that's a very useful kind of set of um, pre preliminary remarks on that. What I wanted to do n now, Tom, is talk a bit about as it were, the production side of this. So we've touched on this already. So talk a bit more about the the way that the public features in in editorial decision making, um, both in the in the public service media and in the pri private media. You you mentioned it in your in your introductory remarks about the way that the the popular press, the the big newspapers, act as a kind of proxy um, for public opinion. Um, so I think. We can immediately see that there are there is a kind of overlap between the ways in which um, the editorial decision makers in the in the BBC take their cues to some extent from editorial decision makers uh, in the private media. But I think more my, my, I don't know, I don't know how much you you agree, but my my general sense is that there's actually there's quite a lot of uh, of consensus amongst. Um, public service and private sector journalists, about what the public is like. Um, and I wonder the extent to which the way that ed editorial decision-makers construct the public in their own minds um, is, a, uh, is a function, to some extent, of their background, but also to do with the it, whether it's to do with the way in which um, any, any operation where you have such strong inequalities of information all the time how that feeds into how you relate to your your client base or your customer base. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is it is it reasonable to talk about a deeper complicity between um, editorial decision makers in public and private sectors? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, they, they do have very different ways. On the one hand, they do have very different ways of kind of envisaging their audience or, or imagining their audience, if you like, don't they? So, you know... Classically, you know, the divide in, in in broadcast media, at least, is between um, private sort of corporate consumer-based models and this public service ethos, which which imagines people um, not as consumers but as, as citizens. And I think you know there, there's an important important aspect uh, of that, which I, I think you know it. it I'm obviously a critic of the BBC, but I think the fact that the BBC emerged as a non-commercial broadcaster, which for for all the faults of and elitism of uh, public service broadcasting um, as it was formed, did have the possibility of imagining um, the audience as citizens, and then that clearly did have an effect. Um, now, that's the broadcast media. There, I mean, when it when it comes to the newspapers. 
you know, they're, they're not really imagining the public as a whole in quite the same way, are they? So, like, the BBC is imagining uh, it, it's, 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 it's supposed to be broadcasting to um, the whole of the nation, although, you know, in reality, you can see different parts of the BBC clearly have different audiences with different sorts of um, class and geographic and, you know, sort of demographic um, sure. makeup to them. Um, but so, so the, the ways in which the, uh, the, the commercial media will tend to envisage their audience will be based on sort of data around, uh, around class consumption and basically market data, um, which is mainly being used in order to sell their audiences to, to, to advertisers. So, but, the, but the, as for the way in which they envisage their audience, I mean, I think it's fair to say that given that neither – both types of institutions are making decisions about what it is that their audience want to see or read or, or listen to – on the basis of... And also, like, crucially, I think, what, they're, what the audience is capable of understanding as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sorry to I sort of butt it in, but, but I think there is this, this, this overwhelming tendency to, to underestimate um, audiences, to assume that audiences can't understand anything that editors themselves find uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my experience in... in, in book publishing was that there's this real nervousness about anything that editors themselves are unfamiliar with. Um, and so I think that there's a sort of queasy sense that assumptions about the public's capacity um, relate to ways in which editors themselves feel nervous or vulnerable. But anyway, so I've sort of Interrupted you slightly. So no, no, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. But then I also think you know m- more obviously and straightforwardly, um, if if you are, if you value yourself as a professional, as all professionals do, you know, if you find yourself in a position of power and privilege, like an, an editor at the BBC or some a journalist in a, a tabloid newspaper, um, you start to trust your own judgments about what should or shouldn't um, appear, and you but you also start to um, value your own expertise and your own instincts in a particular way. And part of that, um, you know, it's very tempting to sort of flatter yourself that, first of all, you have some sort of, uh, some sort of close relationship, some sort of uh, almost mystical relationship with your audience. And you, you find this in all... Co- I mean, actually, less funny enough, in tabloid journalism, I mean, perhaps this represents the BBC's kind of insecurity on this point, but you, you do find this in the literature, this kind of, under, this, this sort of sense that the BBC is extremely close to its audience, or it has a sense of its audience, but in the same way you see that in the tabloid journalists, don't you, this, this sort of praise when you read about tabloids as, as having this incredible sort of um, popular instinct that allows the sun, for example, to have its finger on the pulse of the nation and the rest of it. You know, if you, in, in kind of elite accounts of how the media works, um, this is a very, it's a very prevalent kind of idea, but what becomes less clear is, well, what actually are, are the actual mechanisms for, for discovering what it is the public is thinking or feeling or what the public mood is? And it doesn't seem to be anything much more than sort of you know, being a bit kind of reactionary and just being in a particular mood yourself, as far as I can tell. Yeah, so I think that I think that's really interesting. Is and going back to what we were talking about last week, the 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 attempts by the um, the tabloids to give a reactionary spin to 
public sentiment or public um, preoccupations during the general election just came across as incredibly creaky and and like inept. So the headline on the or the the front page of the Sun, I think, on election day was "Put him in the core bin" or something like that, mm-hmm. right? And there was a picture Brilliant. of Corbyn being put in a bin, and you were just kind of like, <laughs> "That's that's just genuinely pathetic." And and like the I had sort of visions of the the designer being told by the editor, "Yeah, we want Corbyn in a bin, yeah." And like the designer <laughs> just being like, "Oh God, this is my you know my fucking life. What's happened, right?" It looked it looked really bad as it, well. It, it was like I mean, it looked like they'd actually just used a really done a really crappy job on Photoshop. But right. I mean, the funny thing is that you know now this stuff. If, if somebody posted that on Twitter and they'd done it themselves, yeah. I'd just be a bit like, "What are you doing? Yeah. Why are you doing <laughs> it's just that? rubbish." Yeah, and um, exactly. And it's that it's the it's the contrast between like the the elite imagining of of a of a popular culture of like satire and you know um irreverence right um which is what the tabloids have produced you have you know you these very very well um well educated and privileged professionals who are impersonating um the public and you can see in you, know, you it's always looked a bit creaky because if you look at the language it's actually it's popular language from about 100 years ago right yeah. so people like children will be called tots and like no one's called a child a top since about 1880, right? <laughs> so it's got this kind of fossilized language of of um, reaching up, you know out to and trying to pour at popular sensibilities. But you can actually compare that in real time with what actual people are doing on Twitter, and it's just so much better, right? It's so much. It's so much. It has so much more energy and interest than its impersonation in the tabloids, which I think is a is a is a long term term problem. I mean, the other thing I'd say is that, my, you know, my sense is that there is a kind of, there's, a, there's an agreement about what the public's like um, on, on the, in public service and private media. It's just that the private media, the private media think that the public is a monster, but is, but is quite willing to flatter it. It wants to, to flatter the monster. Whereas the, the, in the public service, there's a sense that, yes, the public is a monster, but we've got to somehow improve it, right? We've got yes. to... I think that's absolutely right. And going back to this kind of uh, history of this, you know, you can see it around these debates about Reefianism. So, you know, for, for listeners who don't know, John Reef was the sort of founding father of the BBC. And he, so he, he kind of developed this idea of public service broadcasting and it had various kind of elements to it. But the one that everyone remembers is this idea of um, cultural uplift, right? So we, we, we shouldn't just give the audience what they want. We should give them the best of everything. And uh, and and th- this has basically been the contours of the elite debate, which is that on the one hand, you know, the public have pretty bad taste, and if we let them decide things, they're probably going to be, uh, you know, they just want crap basically. Right, so which, we, we can improve on them, and then the tabloid response to that, of course, and and which I mean, say the tabloid response is sort of corporate response, which once it was always advocated for a marketization of the. Uh, community of systems has said uh yeah we the public want crap and we're going to give it to them and we're going to give them good crap and we're going to give them heaps of it you know every day day in day out because that's what this is what the people want and who are you people in broadcasting house you know and this of course was the famous kind of murdoch line and it was the one which the neoliberals kind of run with you know despite all all their kind of elitism you know for obvious um cynical reasons but i think all right you know that that is basically the contours of the debate. What kind of happens? I mean, it's a sort of 
there's a sort of a truce for um, through different periods of British history between uh, you know the the kind of uh, cultured elite who who run the BBC and the dumber downers um, at the tabloids and in in the commercial sector. You know, and the, but like you say, there's there's clearly um, there's clearly big scope for agreement there about what would happen if we put the if we let the public decide on things. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and, and, and that seems to me to be uh, what they share. The, the, the only, the only, the debate, the, the debate is over, you know, how we should respond to that as, um, as people are calling, actually calling the shots. Right. So they have a, you know, they have a deep shared interest in the idea that, in some sense, they stand apart from and above uh, the public and its opinions, and that their job is either to, uh, to, to improve them in a kind of missionary way. Or, as you say, to to engage with them and exploit them for commercial benefit, and those two those two approaches, they both assume that there's this permanent relationship of of inequality between the people on the inside of the media and the people on the outside who are being serviced by them. Um, but they, ha- yeah, they have important differences of, of of detail. But I think, as you say, they both push back incredibly hard against the idea that, well, maybe there's something to be said for the public being engaged in, in some substantive way in, in media production or in, 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 the, in the way that the culture is, is represented. And it's this, this deep anti-democratic bias, right? Um, the idea that democracy is bad for art is an absolute given. Right, it's it's always on the like you can say that in any context, right? Um, you know what what Switzerland ever produced, you know chocolate and cookie clocks, or whatever. You know, like the idea that democracy and um, and and the cultural production in some way in in, in some in deep deep antagonism um, is something that I think is 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 very common and and is I would say massively unsafe. Um, I think. The, one, sorry, one more sorry. point I wanted to to add to this discussion is um, this kind of tension, which is sort of related between like news and entertainment, which is tends to be the basis on which these things get discussed. You know, because like the tabloids are sort of developed a tradition, the, the British tabloids of um, moving away from this kind of idea of uh, enlightened political discussion towards one of um, entertainment, right? Which is the Daily Mail and similar publications were, were very um, prominent in that. Now, what was quite interesting, uh, and I, I forget the study, uh, the name of the study, I think it might have been from a book called uh, Post-Broadcasting uh, Democracy. Uh, but one of the findings from uh, that study was that it didn't matter which class you were in, in terms of uh, how interested you were in political matters. And it's also something that James Curran mentions in um, in the sort of classic book, uh, Power Without Responsibility, on the newspapers, was that there's also this sort of sense that if you're lower down in the class structure, you won't be educated or intelligent enough to understand important issues of the day. But what's quite interesting, is, and that's very deeply ingrained within um, within uh, political culture, I mean, not just in the media, but within academia, of course, and these other centers of, uh, of, of expertise and where you have to be very highly educated to get access. But the, the data there, and I'm, uh, it suggests that actually 
it doesn't matter where you are in the class structure. If you're very rich, then you're probably more likely to be interested in entertainment and news, just as you are at the bottom. So I think that that's really important in terms of understanding how these these things work. And one of the reasons why the myth of an, an sort of non-political um, people in working class people uh, developed was partly because of the political economy of the press, because uh, the because of the ways in which the uh, political economy of it was structured. Uh, the the tabloids, the populist tabloids, which are much more focused on entertainment um, and catering towards a mass audience, became much more entertainment based. And the more elite publications like the Guardian, the FT, and the Times mm-hmm. maintained more of a highbrow um, kind of uh, politically engaged sort of seriousness to them. So I I think that's quite an important point that sort of fits into this as well. So we've talked a bit about uh, editorial culture and the way in which the public is constructed at the moment. Um, it would be useful, I think, to listen to a um, a clip now of uh, Evan Davis talking about uh, a particular uh, editorial decision uh, made a few years ago. Evan Davis is the presenter of Newsnight, which is the um, late night news analysis flagship news analysis program on BBC Two Television. Um, in the extract we're going to listen to, he's just been asked about why Nigel Farage was given so much coverage um, by the BBC. I hear the Nigel Farage point a lot, and I'll be honest, I've heard it made within the BBC, I've heard it made without the BBC, and I'm not not here to defend the BBC, and nothing I say should be taken as a BBC line. Um, The only thing I would say is that I think the best, your best protection against Nigel Farage getting undue prominence. And as the questioner put it, who makes the decision and what decision is made? Your protection is is that no one person should be making that decision. And the one thing I'm happy to tell you is that in the BBC, there is no one person who makes these decisions. The BBC is not, as I know many people like to think, a kind of a giant thing where Tony Hall tells everybody what to do uh, and the management, if you like, kind of dictate what the BBC is doing and what it isn't doing. The BBC is a somewhat somewhat messy network of competing fiefdoms and rival uh, tribes, each doing their own thing and making some of their own decisions. I'm not going to pretend there aren't central guidelines and there aren't central rules about balance and impartiality and what the BBC means by it. But the truth is it's it's a far messier organisation than people think. And often people have conspiracy views about the BBC. And I just say, the BBC could not manage a conspiracy even if it tried. Now, I'll answer the Farage point more specifically. I think, here's my suspicion of why you hear so much Farage on the BBC. And I I don't know, because I don't make these decisions. Here's my suspicion why. It is that BBC believe that the big, interesting, vital tension in our society at the moment is not green versus non-green, but the tension that is gripping people and that is talked about in pubs at all levels and in all classes and all ages is what one might broadly call the populist versus the liberal liberal divide. And the BBC believes and thinks, this is my suspicion, I don't know, but this is my suspicion, that Nigel Farage is among the prominent proponents on one of those sides and that it needs to give that side so that is my belief as to why it is. I don't think it's a, a decision that any one person takes. 
that Farage is the guy, we must give him more than the Greens. I think these are decentralised. But as I say, your protection against this has to be that the BBC is not a monopoly and that the, and within the BBC there's no central control. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the way in which um, Evan Davis describes the the key kind of dividing lines there, it mirrors what we were discussing earlier about the sort of dividing lines between the tabloids press and the BBC and that kind of, um, you know, different vision that they've, uh, that they've adopted themselves. So, you know, the, the tabloids have basically um, built a kind of, you know, mass audience through a combination of, um, entertainment and uh, appealing to, you know, usually to quite reactionary opinion and nationalistic sentiment, which is a kind of really a way of squaring the political interests of uh, their owners with the, uh, with building up a kind of, um, with building up a mass audience. And so the way in which the BBC seems to understand politics there, or at least Evan Davis seems to understand the key divisions in politics, is basically between um, the sorts of people who work at the BBC against whom the tabloids you know, will rail as um, metropolitan um, liberal elites and the kind of people who are assumed to be um, out there in the country, as it were, the UKIPers and the Middle England and the reactionaries, and they presumed... Um, readers of the right-wing press, you know, the assumption being that the reason why the popular press is popular is basically because um, out there there are this these kind of, uh, you know, right-wing populist um, nationalist sentiment. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. There's a sense in which um, Davis is, con is confusing, um, you know, sort of contingent facts about how the media is structured um, with some deep fissure in society. Um, and I think it's interesting and instructive to think a little bit about where one might actually want to locate this big, interesting tension, as he describes it. It's the phrase he uses. Um, if, you didn't, if you didn't think in terms of a populist brackets tabloid versus liberal brackets public service divide, the the other alternative he, he gave was was something to do with like green and non green, okay. which shows an almost sort of perfect um, ability to swerve around issues of political economy. It seems to me in that they were making a decision about what the big interesting tension in the country was uh, in the years directly after the financial s system had crashed and had to be bailed out by the state, right? So the response to a crisis in political economy is to discover and reproduce, um, as you say, this kind of, um, this liberal populist um, division, which is very familiar to, to people uh, <coughs> who work in the media, but which seems to me to have almost nothing to say about this, the overwhelming fact that um, our, our model for um, generating prosperity had completely fallen apart uh, in 2007, 2008, um, and by focusing on, like, you know, crucially, I think, by focusing on this populist versus liberal divide, the BBC ends up, it seems to me, legitimating uh, the coalition response to 
the financial crisis, which is what, which is that of imposing austerity. Um, by refusing to look at uh, the political economy of what's going on and to perhaps make the big interesting tension between those who are committed to a financialized economy and those who aren't. Uh, that's to say, by refusing to look at, look at um, what's going on in the country in terms of political economy, um, the BBC ends up completely um, giving up on the idea that it might might want to make any kind of critical intervention or make any kind of critique of um, the, uh, the the government's economic policy. Now, it might be that the BBC is simply structurally unable uh, to criticise the government of the day, particularly when the opposition are are broadly in agreement with it. But but it, but it's interesting, isn't it, that the way in which they construe the nation at this crucial time exonerates them of, of, of even the need to try. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, what's kind of strange about that, um, the way that Evan Davis d- describes that, is that there's this kind of liberal centre that's, that's under threat from, you know, nationalism and the rest of it. But in terms of, like, having a popular appeal, I mean, what was the division in the last election? I mean, where was liberalism, you know, as, as, a, as an ethos? I mean, unless you, I suppose you could associate it in some senses with the Labour Party, but liberalism, social liberalism, and li- it was certainly there, but liberalism as a kind of a, a vision, you know, pr- pretty much collapsed. Um, I suppose you could make the argument that uh, earlier on, Cameron and, and Clegg formed a sort of liberal centre to which, you know, was was probably much more um, amenable to the Evan Davises and, you know, George Osborne's and the rest of them who, you know, share a pretty similar worldview. Um, as for this nationalism thing and, and Nigel Farage, I mean... Again, you know, I don't want to keep bringing things back to the tabloids, but I, I do think it's revealing the way in which um, the BBC sort of concedes its role there and the way in which I think actually at that particular moment, like post-2008, you and, and even before that, there was an awareness actually of people who were at the top of the BBC, people like Nick Robinson and Evan Davis, that they were losing contact with their audience and they were losing contact with a kind of a, a, a national sentiment, a national anti-political sentiment. And the, the way that they wanted to sort of deal with that was to re-engage people with politics. And when they say politics, they mean the sort of elite political system, um, Westminster and all of that. And the thing is, it's not that it's not that there isn't nationalist um, sentiment out there. It's it's that as soon as you take away any sense of these this sentiment being you know connected to any sort of um, questions of power or political economy, then yeah, like you say, it just becomes a perfect alibi to not actually understand really what's going on. You know, and you can see that this and all these kind of um, elite events, like like from the recording that we, we just played, where there's a sort of discussion about these different sort of tribes, you know, and they're sort of associated with different ways of looking at the world and different ideologies and different worldviews, which seem to be completely divorced from what's actually going on in society, you know. And it, it, I think most notably of all, and, you know, populism has now been discussed, you know, to death really, but... In, in terms of not understanding what was going on with Corbynism, it's, part of the reason for that was that they had decided that this was where the division 
lay, you know. And what's interesting about Corbynism as a project is it actually combines different elements of this. You know, it's not actually um, standing on one side of the divide or another. Um, there, there, there are populist kind of anti-establishment elements to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Corbynism, but it's certainly not a nationalistic or um, chauvinistic political project. And in many ways, it's very antagonistic towards, you know, the liberal elite, if, so, if such a thing can be said to exist. You know, so um, Corbyn's Corbyn, Corbyn supporters are very critical of um, of the BBC and of the sort of moderates in the Labour Party for obvious reasons. But Corbyn himself, you know, is it recently in particular, started, you know, attacking uh, the commentaria and, you know, these sort of moderates in, in the press. Yeah, I, I think that there is a, I mean, there is a specific, I think, I think the, the so-called or self-described liberal elite has a, has a particular problem with, with Corbynism, in a way, in that it, it takes, I think, the, the classic liberal view that um, the extremism of the left and of the right are, you know, in some senses, you, they meet, don't they? Like, the extremes yeah. meet, um, and they, they sort of blur into one another. And this is, by the way, this is something that, that people who deny that there's any such thing as neoliberalism are often found saying, and it's one of the defining characteristics of early neoliberal thought, um, that socialism and fascism are in some sense um, uh, the same insofar as they are hostile to um, the liberal enterprise economy. Um, but I think that the, you know, the BBC has a particular problem with Corbynism because if you look at the, histor- the history of the Labour left, they are far in advance of the political centre the moderates, if you like, on issues like gay rights, racial equality, um, and so on, um, they are they are far more liberal than the liberals. Yeah. Um, in the in the nineteen eighties, and they pay a real a real political price for their principles as well, right? Um, they are subject to an enormous campaign of vilification uh, of being, you know, on the lo- the loony left uh, is a, is a permanent kind of. Um, uh, weaponized theme that's used against the Labour Party throughout the 1980s. And if you look at what, what the loony left are being criticised for in the 1980s, they're being criticised for things which are now completely uncontroversial. right? Like basic respect for difference. This is really yeah. what they're arguing for. And this causes, you know, this is, cause, this is a cause of absolute outrage. Uh, and I think deep embarrassment as well um, for those who want to be seen as moderate. Um, so I think there's I think there's a problem with this with this conflation of liberalism and the centre, for example, um, yeah. which uh, which Corbynism really highlights is that actually, like the defence of basic decency, can be can be seen at certain times as being an extremist position, but it's it's not, right? Um, it is what it is, and the idea that you can simply split the difference between extremes and come up with where the moderate, sensible people are. Um, is a terrible is a terrible delusion and a, and a very seductive one it seems. Um, the other, th- I mean, there's a couple of other things to flag up in Evans' comments. Um, firstly, like his his initial reaction is is to, is really to sort of ignore the question entirely and just say, oh no, the current structure is your best defence against that happening. Like yeah. the idea that it might be happening um, is kind of dismissed a priori because there's no you have you, like if it did happen. There's no possible world in which it couldn't have happened, right? Because he says um, your protection has to be uh, the internal internal pluralism of the BBC's decision making. 
Like the fact you've got these warring tribes within the BBC, that's your only possible defence against disproportionate coverage uh, for, for, for any given position. Um, yeah, it's a sort of balance of powers argument in terms of like editorial decision making power, you know. Right, and it kind of and it just sort of leaves it leaves hanging the question as well. Did you get it wrong? It's like, well, we couldn't have got it wrong, right? By definition, yeah. There's no way in which we could have got it wrong because it's the only possible way of organising it. So, well, there are other other possible ways, but they would have been even worse. Right, right. So, right. so the the other the alternative would be to have like yeah, like a tyrannical decision maker at the top who decides everything right which yeah. is the which is which he seems to sort of conflate with a conspiratorial like he describes to me a very conspiratorial picture of how the bbc works by the way right with all these but the thing is you always hear this again and again don't you like uh, i don't you don't be conspiratorial about this and then he says yeah he says so it's not a conspiracy but the bbc's full of these uh, <laughs> these different tribes trying to push their different agendas you know it's like all right that's, so, that's not a conspiracy at all then like yeah, it's that that's that's less conspiratorial than having a director general who heads editorial policy, apparently, in Evan Davis's mind. But, yeah, you know, yeah. there you go. And, uh, and again, like the, I mean, the final point I make is, as I say, the complete full foreclosing of the idea there might be any other way um, of discovering what the big interesting tension in the country is, right? The idea that you might get 100 people in a room and ask them over a few days, like with sandwiches and like a like expenses, like what do you think the big interesting tension in your country is, right? Bearing in mind, like the banks have just collapsed and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the economy has lost 7% GDP or whatever. What's the interesting tension for you, right? And, and actually maybe, maybe over time people would discover that it was something other than what was front of mind for editorial classes at the BBC. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what's kind of interesting about the way that, you know, that gets framed is, again, coming back to this sort of sense of, okay, how does the BBC, which is what we began by discussing, how does the BBC discover what the, what this, these divisions in society are? And I think it's quite striking that if what, what kind of happens at the BBC is that there are these sort of legitimate points of uh, contention within the, within the formal political system, particularly um, around the EU and immigration, you know, which really defined um, these kind of political debates. And, and this goes back to Thatcherism, you know, where Thatcher sort of combines the interests of, you know, the financiers, the corporate elite with this, uh, um, you know, classic sort of conservative uh, right-wing voters. And the, the, the tension kind of come, works its way through Blairism, where, um, you know, there you've got the left-wing Labour vote and you're trying to square that in a different way with the interests of the corporate elite who are seen as being sort of having very, fairly liberal views. Well, what then you get is this sort of kickback from the right in the Blair era against, against Blairism, not as neoliberalism, but as liberalism. I, the sort of left elements which have seeped into um, to Blairism around um, gay rights and multiculturalism and the rest of it becomes the, the point of attack for the right and... And at the same time, the the key divisions, the actual fissures within the Conservative Party, are over still um, Europe, and of course between uh, within Labour over immigration. So what you actually see working its way through the BBC, particularly under Thompson, um, 
was this kind of sense of, okay, immigration is becoming a big issue. The EU is becoming a big issue. We need to reflect this, right? right and right. the way that we reflect this is we start to make sense of these different sort of uh, warring tribes in society. So the starting point becomes the point of divisions within the political elite, and then they go out and they discover public opinion based on that. So you can see, again, almost a similar sort of process as what we were discussing earlier with the way question time and polling gets used, is that you take the questions and the agenda from you know, the official political system, yeah. and, and then you go out and you discover and frame sort of public opinion around that. Which is, which is you know, it's, it's a deeply bewildering process, isn't it? You know, yeah. because as a, as, a, as a citizen or a punter or an individual, however you want to describe it, your, your, your attempt to understand the world is constantly being pushed towards a certain frame. Yeah. Um, and, and the extent to which you can make your, your form of expression conform with um, the way the, the elite construct the problem is the extent to which you're likely to be heard. Well, to the extent to which you're likely to be intelligible. Um, and the idea that public opinion might be autonomous from and have different dispositions um, from, uh, from the parliamentary elite or the media elite is kind of inadmissible. It's like, that, that, that's just not something that we do. And that's a very, that brings us back, I think, to this very peculiar idea of public service. It's like, in what sense are we serving the public here? Um, by corralling um, existing concerns into elite-approved channels of expression. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it, to see what happens um, in the aftermath of this general election. I mean, we're seeing sort of early days of this now in terms of how the BBC and, you know... It, so if Evan Davis was asked this question now, you know, what are the key divisions in society? That what, I wonder what his answer would be or if it would, if it, if it would change. Um, and the extent to which, you know, the, the BBC has for years now treated this as the key division between... Um, the sort of liberal centrists and the populist right, how much that's going to be upset, how much the recent sort of political developments through the general election are going to upset some of those editorial judgments or how they're going to make, make sense of this now. I mean, that's sort of an open question, I suppose, but it'll it, be interesting to see how it plays out. It is. I mean, my, my sense so far, I mean, there are, there are hints already, I think, of the idea that actually the real issue is Brexit and Corbyn did well in the election but actually, the you know he's still got this 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 issue about remain or or leave, um, and the the real divide is is still this you know this um, concern around uh, the EU, um, which is a way I think whatever its merits as a, 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 a I mean I, I'm not saying it's not something we should consider or take seriously, but by by putting it front and center. It makes it makes the key divide in British politics between Jeremy Corbyn and Chakramuna, right? It focuses back on tensions within the Labour Party rather yeah. than say tensions between the working majority and the landlord class, which is where I would really be comfortable, more comfortable seeing the divide being drawn um, between people who extract rents and people who go to work and try and make a living in a in a in a casino economy. Um, but that's my, yeah, my sense is that's how the centre will fight back, is by saying, oh, Corbyn's had this populist moment, but now, you know, the grown-ups, we, we want to talk about grown-up things, and that's overwhelmingly 
um, the single market and all that, all that jazz. Good. So we're coming to the end of yet another very, very long half hour. I think we're about 50 minutes in now. Um, and we've, we've talked long enough, I think. Um, do drop us a line at Media Democrats on Twitter. Uh, if there are subjects you'd like us to discuss, if you've got responses to what we've discussed, if there are things that you want to flag up for us. Um, my name is Dan Hind. I'm at Dan Hind on Twitter. My co-host, as ever, is Tom Mills, at TA underscore Mills on Twitter. Media Democracy is brought to you by the Media Fund. Mediafund.org is their website. Do check it out. They're on Twitter at the Media Fund. Uh, again, worth following to find out more about changes, innovations, ways of making the media more responsive. Tom and I look forward to talking to you again next week. Have a great time. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.